Welcome everybody online. Welcome everybody outside. We love you. We see you. We're glad you're here. We've got a special day ahead of us, part two of our series, Generous. And this is the, in fact, the Sunday where I talk about how we together are going to transform the world through our generosity. I've been waiting for this for quite some time. And we're going to dive into that and into scripture today. It's going to be amazing. Before I do any of that, let's just stop and ask God to join us one more time. God and Father, I'm just here asking you to move. There is a tremendous gap between who I am, my natural abilities, and, and what's in front of me here today. There is a huge gap between us as a church family and what you're calling us to today. There's this huge gap between what we want to see happen in the world and our little limited efforts and abilities. And so God, I'm asking specifically that your Holy Spirit would fill that gap today. God, that it would be you who's teaching us this morning. God, it would be you who's moving through this community this morning. God, it would be you whose presence we experience in new and real ways today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know this about Momentum yet, once a year we stop everything we're doing and we talk about the biggest offering of the year. And you're like, this already has all my red flags going up. Like church, money, big offering. What are you doing, Matt? Like why are you just going to lead with that today? I've got issues going on. I've got things in my life. How are you just going to come in off the jump and tell me that you want me to give a bunch of money? Glad you asked. Here's why I can say that so confidently and so so freely this morning. Once a year, we receive the biggest offering of the year, and we give 100% of it away to people who are hurting and in need. The reason for the confidence, the reason for the excitement and enthusiasm that you're going to see over the next few weeks, if you haven't been here for this yet, the reason for that is we are going to change the world through our generosity. We literally have something in our budget called a pass-through account. And so the money that we receive for this Christmas offering passes right through our account and into the lives of people in need. Now, I'll tell you this though. Every year when we do this, the goal is twofold. Yes, we have this goal to like change the world, to reach out, to help people in need. But the other half of that goal, it's like a, two sides of a coin. The other half of that goal is as we do this, we would become generous people in the process. I think we could do a huge give, but if our hearts aren't changed at the end of it, this whole thing is a bust. I want you to be a radically, lavishly generous person, okay? As your pastor, I have already been praying for you, and I've been praying that God would make you a radically, lavishly generous person. And it's not because I want something from you. It's because I want something for you. Here's three things we established last week. Number one is this. Generous people impart hope. When I become generous, be that in the way I tip, tip a server, in the way I meet a need in my day-to-day -day life, or through my regular strategic giving to organizations that I love, I don't just add good deeds to my list. I become the kind of person who is imparting hope to other people. What we find is on the other side of our generosity is often people receiving hope who did not have it before. If you are the kind of person, let's just do this. I won't even make you raise your hand because nobody likes raising their hand in church. But let me ask you, if you're the type of person, are you the type of person who wishes there was more hope in the world? 
Are you the type of person who would like to see a world that is more filled with hope? Can I tell you something? You can be that kind of person. It happens when you adopt the practice of generosity. I want you to be generous because generous people live free. Generous people live free. We know every single one of us will experience the war with wealth at some capacity. Every single one of us will experience a battle that takes place in our heart and soul around what we have, what we've been given, and what we're going to do with it. It could be if you grew up with not having a lot and now you're a really hard worker because you never want to feel the pain of not having again. It could be in that journey you're just trying to discover if you can really trust God. You're like, I want to be a generous person, but I'm scared of what will happen next week. And you have this war going on uh, as to whether or not God could to actually be your provider. Some of you are at an age and stage in your life where your war about generosity, it's like, it's time to move. It's time to become radically generous. Decide that, hey, in my household, this is kind of enough. And so I'm going to create a strategy to become radically generous, legacy generous, change the world generous with my time left on earth and what God has given me. Every single one of us will experience the war with wealth and the weapon we bring to battle in the war with wealth is our generosity. I, I want you to be generous because generous people make the love of God visible in the world around us. It's one thing to say, hey, God is love. And I know that 1 John 4 chapter where it talks all about how that works and God made His love visible through Jesus. And it's one thing to say, hey, Jesus loves you. It is an entirely different thing to take that concept we call the love of God and make it visible here on earth through the act of generosity. When we are generous, we take the love of God and we bring it to bear in our world in tangible ways that people can actually see and feel. That's what we're going to do in this gift. And this is actually what we're going to sit down on this entire morning because we're going to Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along or you want to make sure I don't make this stuff up, we're going to go to Luke chapter 10, U version. You can click Luke and then the numbers come down. You get 10. That's chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. We're going to dive into a story that you've probably heard before. I bet you if you haven't heard it before, you've probably heard of it before. It begins... In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's a couple things about this before we jump into it. Number one, this guy is kind of like an attorney or a lawyer. There was a lot of overlap in the legal system and the religious system back in this day. So he's kind of an attorney. He studies the scriptures. He's probably a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He's probably part of this Jewish ruling council. They didn't like Jesus because of reasons we described last week. You can go back online and watch that if you want to. But he goes on this day to test Jesus. And we don't really know why he wanted to do this or what he was up to this day. We do know what happens in the conversation. And he asks Jesus this question, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And that's a good question from him because he believed one day that, that God was going to come back and actually set up a kingdom on earth, wipe out all the other kingdoms, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel would become one and God would reign. And he's going, hey, 
when that day comes and when it all happens, like, what do I got to do to be on the right side of things? And as you can see, Jesus answers his, oh, go back, go back, go back, go back. I got you. I got you. 26. Keep going. Backwards, backwards. Hey, there we go. Jesus answers his question with a question. Okay, this is a common rabbi move, okay? Like, this is like, hey, what do you think? What do you think? You know one of those? Jesus does that. He says, well, hey, teacher, hey, attorney, hey, you want to test me? Let me ask you, what's written in the law? You have the same Bible I have. You have the same scriptures I have. You've studied them with your buddies for 25 years. You tell me what you think you need to do to inherit eternal life. So the man responds. And in the next verse, verse 27, it says, he answered, well, you love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Time out. Something huge happened in the background of this text which makes this moment explosive and pivotal in the life of this passage. And I need to explain it to you before we go on. Jesus has been teaching. If you look at Luke 10, it's like, question and answer time with Jesus, teaching time with Jesus, talking time with Jesus. And Jesus does something radical. Just a few verses above this. Before this, somebody asked Jesus, you know what they asked Jesus right before this? They said, hey Jesus, of all the commandments in scripture, which is the priority? Which one comes first? This Jewish culture, these good Jewish boys and girls were raised on Deuteronomy 6.4. And everyone knows Deuteronomy 6.4, they even have a name for it. It was called the Shema. These kids would have grown up reciting it as children. They would have had to memorize it. They would have done hand gestures to it, Sunday school about it. Every Sunday school class, these good Jewish boys and girls would have went to started with Deuteronomy 6.4, which was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is one, and we love God with everything we've got. So this guy comes to Jesus right before this, and he goes, hey, Jesus, here's the thing, though. What's the most important commandment? And then Jesus does something completely radical. He does something that would have shaken the earth that day. He goes, you guys, there's not just one commandment. There's two commandments. There is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and it was troublesome now you hear that and you go okay I've heard that that's common that's what I do why was it so troublesome well it's troublesome when you've been taught all you have to do is love God well and I don't even have to worry about all these other people it's troublesome when you've been brought into a system that just says hey love God sacrifice to God Pray to God and all will go well with you. And you don't really have to worry about the mess that's out there around you. Take care of your house, your household, and don't worry about all that junk. Just kind of insulate yourself from it. Make sure you go to temple. Make sure you do your practices. Make sure you do your sacrifices. And you're good. When Jesus comes along and he says, hey, it's no longer about just you and God. Some problems happen. Can I tell you something? Anybody remember in the 90s? When they tried to take ketchup and make it green, it was disgusting. Somebody just threw up in their mouth right now in church. Like, does anybody remember that? And hey, did it go good or bad? Thumbs up if it went good. If you were there and you remember it, how'd it go? It went terribly. Because ketchup's not supposed Okay, if you thought that was a big deal, Gen Z, do y'all remember that one week where Instagram tried to be TikTok overnight and they didn't tell anybody and they just switched to TikTok and then it just was a bust and everything? 
if you thought, if you thought in Fresh Prince, when they did the great switcheroo without telling anybody and thought it, okay, youngins, let me educate you really quick. I know it's on, I know it's on Nick at Night now, and so you watch that, like, that legendary old TV. Well, back in my day, Fresh Prince was on when you got home from school, and if you made it home quickly and knocked out your homework by 3.30, you could watch back-to-back Fresh Prince episodes. And it was really cool because if you go to my Fresh Prince picture, there was this lovely family. You had Uncle Phil, uh, Ashley, uh, not pictured, Will and Carlton, and then Vivian was the mother. And, and it was a great show. Ups and downs, creative moments, West Philadelphia, born and raised. You guys know the rest. Uh, and, and it was going really good. And, and then one day, season three rolled around, and without telling anybody, just poof, in an instant, there was a new mom in the Fresh Prince, and we were all just left questioning, what happened to the old Vivian? Like, she's just gone. And they didn't tell anybody. And then they just left us. Like, we thought it was going this way, and now it's going that way. Can I tell you something? I'm joking, but I'm just trying to get your attention so you can see how big of a deal it is. When Jesus took commandment, and made a command meant instead this messed with people. This caused problems. Jesus would say, hey, I knew you grew up in Sunday school and taught you like this. It's not like that anymore. I know that you raised, you were raised to know this verse and recite this verse and it's everything to you and you've established your whole faith on top of it. I'm telling you, it is time to update your software because a faith that makes much of God that doesn't care for people is no faith whatsoever. There was even a time when Jesus had a group of people around him, religious leaders, he's right there at the temple, and he goes, let me tell you something. Let me tell you how much other people matter. If you're going to worship and you have a problem with somebody, God would rather have you go work out your problem with that somebody than come in and play your religious games. Jesus takes the commandment, makes commandments, and he brings the love of people on equal status with the love of God. That's why Jesus' disciple John would say, whoever says they love God but doesn't love their brother is a liar. This messed with people. But it also did something beautiful. It created a version of faith where faith is now expressed through love of other. See, a me and God and God alone faith leaves the world exactly how it is today. Uh, a faith that is just about me and God, it doesn't take the kingdom of God and bring it to life in the world around me. A faith that is just me and God doesn't do anything for orphans and widows and hungry people and broken people and outcasts and isolated people because they aren't my problem. But when Jesus says, there is no longer a commandment, there are commandments. He throws open the kingdom doors and says, that world out there, those hurting people, the isolated, the lonely, the broken, the hungry, they belong to me. And it's our job to do something about it. So this teacher of the law, he's clearly nervous. He doesn't like this new form of faith. Jesus says it's no longer just love God, it's love God and your neighbor. And so this lawyer, this attorney, this teacher asks him a question in verse 28. He says, okay, Jesus, then who is 
my neighbor. This idea of I'm called to love the world is too big for me. It's frightening for me. I want me and God. I worship Him and it's all good. What do you mean the world? What do you mean care for people? What do you mean neighbor? When he asks this question, what's my neighbor? Because he wants to fence in Jesus' new teaching. He wants to know what is the minimum amount of loving people I can do and still be good. What is the minimum amount I can get away with? If I can create a definition of neighbor that is like literally that guy and that guy, I can do that. But you can't tell me that this broken human Humanity is actually my problem. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. It's a story you've probably heard or maybe heard of. Uh, I'm low on time, so I'm going to have to summarize the story. But it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, Jesus says there was this man traveling between two towns and he's moving from one to another and the sun sets and it's evening and this man gets jumped by a group of robbers and they beat him within an inch of his life. He's laying there, they strip him of his clothes, they strip him of his money, his livestock, everything, and they run off into the night, leaving him to lay there and be devoured by animals who are going to come and do all the cleanup for him. And Jesus teaches about these three different people who walk by this broken man the next morning and, and basically they're the high society of culture. They're the helpful people, the good people, the good-natured people. If he was telling the story today, he might say, there was the man uh, on the street and this worker was on his way to go work at the Red Cross and he saw the man laying there and he knew he needed to be at the Red Cross so he left the man where he was so he could go serve other people. If Jesus was telling the story today, he'd say there was a pastor on the way to his church to go and preach a sermon and he saw this man hurting and beaten and within an inch of his life, but he wanted to go to his church that day, so he walked by the man that was hurting. He could say there was a priest and he was a well-loved priest and he was going to perform a ceremony for a family and on his way to the ceremony with the family, he sees a man beaten and dying, but he decides not to stop that day. Everybody you thought would stop could stop or should stop goes right by the hurting man. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And we don't understand this in our culture, but it's like the last person you would expect to help, the most unlikely character, the person that everybody had already written off, a Samaritan comes walking by the man hurting on the road, sees him, and helps. But not just does he help, he goes above and beyond for this broken person. It says he gathers up the man and places him on his burrow and the man now has to walk. It says that he took the robe off of his back and he placed it on the beaten, hurting man. He gives him water to drink and oil for his wounds and he walks into the nearest town and he goes to the innkeeper and he says, man, he's hurting, he's broken. I need to get a room for him. I don't want any room. I want your nicest room. And he stays for this man to stay and he goes, tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. This man's going to sit here and heal. And when he gets back, when I get back, I will pay for anything he needed in my absence. And he makes sure that this broken man gains healing and he's restored back to life and everybody's on the edge of their seat and they're listening to Jesus and these three likely people passed and this unlikely person became the hero that day and then Jesus asked them a question. Verse 36 it says which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man that fell into the hands 
of robbers. And everyone knew the answer. Everyone knew it was painfully obvious that the Samaritan did the God thing that day. This question Jesus asked, which of these three do you think is a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It could be rephrased like this. Jesus asked in essence, based on the actions of these four people, which would you say is the God follower? Jesus could have asked, which one of these people took the love of God and made it visible in the world around them? The painfully obvious answer for them and for us is the one who did something to help someone. It's not the one who quietly went to worship just me and God and God and me and we do our thing and I'm, and I'm him and he's mine and those people, God love them, I'll pray for them, but none of them, God, Jesus would say none of that. He'd say it's the one who helped. And here's what I love about Jesus. Hold that thought for a second. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus didn't just teach the love of God. He lived it. Jesus did not just pay lip service to the love of God. When you looked at his life, it was something that he lived out in front of people. I love that about Jesus. We talked last week about how Jesus never fell into religious games. I love that about him. He couldn't stand phony. I love that about him. Here's what else I love about Jesus. He was never content to teach something he wouldn't be willing to live out. I hope that can be said about me. I never want to be willing to say, hey church, do this, and then you watch my life, and you don't see me doing it. Jesus was the same exact way. In Mark 1.22, if you go to Mark 1.22, this is one of the lines that you get after one of Jesus' famous teachings. It says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. There was this difference. When Jesus explodes on the scene, there's this difference in the way he teaches. He teaches not like these Pharisees, these attorneys, these teachers of the law. They just say what everyone should do, but you never see it do it himself. Why do they say that Jesus had authority? Why? Because he was living it. You know what gives authority? Living it. If, if there's a medical emergency and somebody falls down and it's like, hey, please help, and you're a medical professional and I'm standing there and you're standing there, you're helping, not me. You have authority in that moment. Why? Because you're living it. We're hunting in the woods one day and we go out to hunt together and it's your woods. I've never been in those woods, but I, I don't know where to go in those woods, but you've been in those woods and you've hunted them before. Well, guess what? You have authority. Authority. Why? Because you've lived it. Why did Jesus have authority? Because he didn't just teach this love people business. He lived it. Do you remember Mark 1? The man with leprosy? 
We've talked about this at length. It's my favorite Jesus healing because one, this man is totally decimated by this affliction. They didn't know germs and culture and how to manage things of that nature in that time. He has this disease where literally his hands and fingers would start crumbling off. His ears, his nose, appendages would just crumble off his body. I can't imagine what it was like for that man that day when he looked and there's this rash on a finger that wouldn't go away. I couldn't imagine the way his heart would have sank when he started wrapping it up to go into work because he knew what lies on the other side in that culture, in that day. That disease is so terrifying. If you're caught with the disease, you're out of here. You're unclean religiously, which means you can't worship God anymore because clearly you sinned to get this affliction. You are unclean ceremonially, which means you can't be near your family anymore and they can't be near you. You're unclean and you're stuck in a colony out on the edge of town, past the edge of town, as you watch you and your friends slowly deteriorate. If you were going to be passing by town or going to a well, you had to shout out the words, unclean, unclean unclean. So in case somebody else was at that well, they knew to go running from your presence because you were disgusting to them. The disease was killing him physically. But the longer I've studied the passage, the more I've come to believe its social effects, its spiritual effects, its relational effects were far worse than the disease itself. And I don't know how he hears about it. But he knows that this rabbi named Jesus is passing by and he throws caution to the wind and makes a scene and he goes screaming, probably running at Jesus, just hoping he makes it past security, throws himself face down in the dirt at Jesus' feet and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And if you read your scripture, it says in Mark 1, Jesus not only said, Shazam, you're healed. It says Jesus reached down and touched the man. And in a moment, he was healed. Why? Because yes, Jesus knew of his disease, but Jesus also knew how badly this isolated man needed to be connected to and loved. Jesus didn't just talk about it. He lived it. Do you remember in John 8, there's a story about a woman caught in adultery. You ever wonder how the heck a woman gets caught in the act of adultery by a group of pastors? Study the passage and you'll understand that this woman was set up because she was a pawn in their game. She was drawn into a situation where she was caused to sleep with a man so they could get the drop on her and make a scene of her life in front of Jesus. They ram themselves into the bedroom. They grab her by the hair. They drag her kicking and streaming through the streets. They throw her at the feet of Jesus, not because they're appalled by what she has done. They want to make a trap for Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says we have to kill this woman. She committed adultery. You believe in the law, don't you? Look at her. We know it happened. There's rocks in their hands. There's hatred in their hearts. And in this moment of, this woman's moment of need, Jesus stoops down on the ground. It says he starts writing with his finger. I've come to believe it wasn't just to write some names in the dirt or a commandment in the dirt. It was to be close to the woman, to be next to the woman. 
and to let her know she's not alone. Jesus understands in their entrapment act that they've also violated the law of Moses. Which is why his response to them is, hey, anyone here who has not just sinned, throw the first stone. And man, I can't wait to get to heaven and watch the end of that movie. When they've all left, the condemned woman is now free. And Jesus looks her in the eye and says, where are your accusers? Where'd they go? She says they're gone, and Jesus looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't just teach the love of God. He lived the love of God. And then, the night of his arrest, less than 24 hours before his crucifixion, he said something completely radical to his disciples, to you, and to me. John 14, Jesus says to us, very, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. Can we just love on and feast on the simplicity of our faith in this moment? Come on. I was the kid in Bible study. When the teacher asked a question, I looked straight down at my notes so I didn't have to answer. And if I did, I'd just say Jesus and hope they'd all move on. Can I just tell you, as a simpleton, I was the kid in seminary who would have to wait till everybody leaves after class and go ask the professor what really happened. Can I tell you, I never had that happen with this verse. Very truly is the word amen, amen in the Greek language. It means truth, truth. It means write this down. Down. It means take it to the bank. It means this is what faith is. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, that means bets on me, claims me, calls himself a Christian. If I do so, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will what? Pray a prayer. No. Whoever believes in me will acquire a bunch of theological knowledge about the ways of God. No, whoever believes in Jesus will do what? The works that he has been doing. This is, oh thank you, I get to do my football illustration now. This is the great handoff of our faith. John 14, 12 is why we have to embrace a faith where we model or we see the pattern of Jesus and live it in our day-to-day -day lives. This is the great handoff. This is Jesus down, set, hit, and he hands the church the ball and says, hey, the people you've seen me caring about, it is now your turn to go and care for. The way you've seen me love the world, it is now your turn to go and love the world in that way. Those hurting people, those broken people, all those people I concern myself with, here's the ball. It's now your turn to go and care for them. Period. Which brings us to this year's Christmas Generosity Project. Christmas Give 22 for me. We receive our largest offering of the year over the next few weeks. It's open today 
through the last day of December. We use that offering, 100% of that offering, to bless people in need. This year's Christmas offering is going to do something so unique and so special. So I'll update you. If you've followed us through the past for these, we, we've gotten in the habit as a church family of writing checks for needs that exist in our city. And it's been a good practice. The, the cool part of it is um, it's very easy to manage. So, hey, what's your need? How can we help? Okay, here's a check. Boom. So two years ago, uh, Vista Square Elementary needed a behavioral health specialist. funded the addition of that staff member at that school. Recently, uh, here's another example. There was a class and family, uh, uh, school supplies, jackets, coats, the whole thing. Boom, we wrote one, and you guys know the tutoring program. I praise God for those moments. Together, the world is better. Conversations, we began to perceive that something's missing. We've got our hearts in the game. Yeah, we need arises. Yeah, we want hearts that beat with compassion for the world around us. But I want to push us farther this year and cause us to check, but actually put our hands to the work that's going to transform the world in Jesus' name. So this year's Christmas give is going to fund a project that we're going to call with Love is going to be an event that we host right here on a Sunday morning. Uh, instead of worship services, we're going to worship God by serving broken people who are in need. And we're going to do several packing to, to fund directly to people broken, hurting, and in need. And so there's one organization called Pack World Associates. Whole host of tables and chairs and hair nuts and gloves and scales and they make it so they can literally set up right here in this gym. You'll see them in here. And together in this gym, we're going to pack over 10,000 meals that are going to be sent to hungry people in Somalia. How simple is that? Hungry people who Secondly, it'll be February, tail end at winter. We're going to make winter care packages for the students of Vista Square. It's going to be super cool. Whatever they need, hats, scarves, a little mug for it, thermos, whatever. And kids ministry is going to be doing the same exact thing we're doing in here. It might even be our children who are making gifts for the children of Vista Square. For us as a family, and I'm absolutely thrilled about it. Organization in Chula Vista, Choices Chula Vista. They're a crisis pregnancy center that exists in our city. And 
I'm getting familiar with them myself, so uh, I'll keep my explanation brief, but it boils down to this. Young women can go to this center when they've become pregnant and they don't know what to do. When they're in the middle of considering all the choices that young, single, pregnant women make while they're all by themselves, real choices exist to come around these women to show them the love of God and provide a hope for their child and for them. So we're going to make care packages for these women so when they show up to these places in these vulnerable conditions, there's somebody there saying, hey, we'd love to help you. Oh, by the way, there's a church in town and they just wanted you to know that God's thinking about you today. And we're going to have gifts available for them. Fourth and finally, our own children are going to make gifts for their teachers. Now that might sound like a non sequitur, right? Like, okay, I was with you on food for the hungry. I get the women in the pregnancies. My kid and their teacher, what's up with that? Well, there are people who are broken and hurting who need to see the love of God. And there are affluent people who still end up in hell if they don't come to know Jesus. And so, as a gospel bridge, our faith city kids We'll be packing gifts for the teachers, good ones, not the junk like kazoos and crap, like good gifts. And they're just going to go, hey, my church and I are thinking about you and praying for you. And they're going to take them into their own schools and bless their teachers. Four projects. And I got fired up this week. Not just because I got to hold a football on stage this week, which is also really fun. But I got thinking about the end of February. And I was thinking about how if you're willing to do this and I'm willing to do this and we're willing to do this, by the end of February, there are going to be people who were thousands of people who were hungry who get to eat food that they wouldn't have had without us. If we do this together, if you do this and I do this and we do this, there are going to be children who go to school warm one day, the day before, because of our love for them. There's going to be teachers who look at your kid or my kid and go, wow, that's not really that bad. Oh my gosh, this is cool. There's going to be people, there's going to be women in these pregnancy centers who are walking in terrified, who are met in that space by the tangible love of God. Guys, that matters. That's why church matters. That's what Jesus meant when he said, go into the world and do what you've seen me doing. It's our turn. Now, here's where I got to press you. Some of you might even say, here's the catch. I've got to challenge you in this moment. Because this isn't going to happen if we just sit. This isn't going to happen if you go, oh, wow, that really hurt my heart, and you walk out the door, go home, and don't do anything about it. I've got to challenge you to give in radical ways. Unfortunately for you, I did the math. And I've discovered that we can do this. But it is going to take everyone in this church Middle school age and up. Now hear me, I know this is a sacrifice. Middle school age and up 
is going to have to give $77.77. Now, I'm kind of joking here because I know you guys, and I know every single one of us could do this. I do want to acknowledge that this number hits many of us in different ways. Bless you, my college students, middle school students. You're looking at 7777 and you're going, eesh. How am I? I mean, we got Bad Bunny coming up two months from now, and I was going to save up for that. And if I don't go to that, then what am I going to do if they go to there and I'm the only one? And it's going to cost you something. And guess what? I still want to challenge you to do it. I'm not talking like tug on your parents' sleeve two weeks before we're doing this. Hey, mom, I forgot I really want to do it. Can I have the money? I'll pay you back. And then you don't pay them back. No, I'm actually saying you're a Jesus follower too. And I want you to come up with your way. You're going to get your hands on that 7777. I want you to give and be a part of changing the world in Jesus' name. Some of you see 7777 and you're like, you can't be serious. Like, how many times? You, I can do 77, 77, 77 times. We're good. I got you, Matt. And if that's where you're at, I want to challenge you to go above and beyond. I want to challenge you to give sacrificially, like the woman in the story we read last week. I want to challenge you to lean all the way into this and give. Here's the cool thing. If we blow this out of the water and, holy cow, that's more than we know what to do with, everything that goes above and beyond is still going directly to people in need. It will do more outreach. It'll feed more people. It'll reach out to more people who are alone and isolated. It'll meet more people with more needs who are broken and hurting 100% of it. But we got to get there together. So I'll finish with this. Some of you didn't grow up on football, so you might not know this. Did you know there's actually, actually a proper way to receive a handoff? It's not just like the quarterback's like, I don't know, you take it. And the guy's like, okay, good. And he just runs. It's not like, uh, uh, hey, you want it? I want it. You want it? I want it. They can't pause in the middle of the play for the handoff. So if you were like me or you played football at any capacity, and, and then at the first day of football camp, they're like, linemen over there, just go eat a snack. Uh, receivers over there, catch the ball. And, and running backs right here. The first drill in line is you walk down a line, I walk down a line, and I put my near hand up, my low hand down, and I receive the ball. So if the quarterback's here, and I'm coming on this side of the quarterback, my elbow that's near the quarterback is going to go like this, so he knows right where to put that ball. If I'm on the other side of the quarterback, my near elbow goes up on this side, so we don't drop the ball. You do all of this for one reason. So you don't drop the ball. Momentum, let me tell you something. Jesus matters. People need him more than ever. Compassion matters. People need it more than ever. The mission of Jesus matters. People are dying for it more than ever. And we cannot afford to drop the ball. But for us, you guys, it's not about the placement of our hands. It's about the placement of our hearts and us together deciding we want to move radically 
and do something beautiful in Jesus' name. The only thing I have to do now is give. We're going to sing one more song. Would you guys stand with me as I pray? I'm just going to devote this project to the Lord on our behalf.